This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we talk about how wildlife moves through the landscape and how wildlife corridors might be the best chance to preserve the different members of ecosystems. It's a good show. Stay with us. First and foremost, all scientists, what what we seek to do is figure out how the world works. (laughs) You know, from... How much more fun can you get than that? You know, since uh, I guess one of the first scientists, Aristotle, said this is the most sublime thing humans can do. Today on Science Moab, we are talking with Dr. Paul Beyer, a professor in the School of Forestry from Northern Arizona University. As a conservation biologist, Dr. Beyer studies wildlife corridors, which are protected areas that allow wildlife to move from one natural area to another without being stopped by human-made barriers. These corridors are important not just for allowing the movement and exchange of genetic material between species, but also for maintaining the integrity and functions of whole ecosystems. Our interview begins with a conversation about what conservation biology actually is and how Dr. Beyer uses biology to conserve species. Yeah, conservation biology is a multidisciplinary approach towards uh, conserving the variety of life on Earth and ecological processes that tie living things to each other and to the abiotic environment. And in the broadest sense, it includes social science as well. And so within conservation biology, you've done a lot of work with wildlife corridors. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could tell me what that is. So uh, wildlife corridors are an attempt by conservation biologists to maintain connectivity between natural areas so that uh, plants and animals can move from one conserved natural area to another. It's it's really, in some ways, it's an unnatural intervention, you know, because the natural state was that we had a connected world. Until even a century ago, or even 50 or 60 years ago, much of the world was really well connected, meaning plants and animals, seeds and propagules and pollinators and seed dispersers could pretty much move about with minimal impediments. Uh, but the increasing and very rapid human alteration of landscapes has created situations where we now have uh, natural areas that are becoming increasingly disconnected. So that makes it difficult for species to uh, recolonize an area where maybe a disease or a hurricane wipes out a population. Uh, Makes it difficult for species to maintain genetic diversity by having gene flow occur between areas. And increasingly, uh, species are now facing the the need for many of them to move their geographic range as climate changes. So that's another reason we need uh, connectivity. So again, these are interventions. uh, The ideal situation, uh, sometimes 
I, I jokingly say the ideal solution for connectivity would be to move the U.S. out of North America, and then everything can move <laughs> as it needs to, but that's not realistic. So these are some uh, semi-natural attempts to, to maintain some semblance of uh, connectivity that was the state of nature for the last first few billion years of <laughs> life's existence on Earth. And so what does that look like on the ground? How are you connecting places? Well, I guess I should start off by saying that mostly we're not <laughs> connecting places. We have a lot of plans to connect places. Some of the plans, increasingly a lot of these plans are starting to be implemented. Um, the, the, the basic idea though is to identify a swath of land, uh, something pretty broad, that will allow multiple organisms uh, to move across the landscape. So that's the idea. And then there are various ways that we could go about trying to identify what swath of land. And one of the biggest unknown questions is how wide does that swath of land need to be? Width, okay. I, I, you know, I think of length as the big obstacle, but width. Yeah. Yeah, so the length is often determined by what we've got, you know, so we're connecting something, usually a protected area, but sometimes just a big natural area that we think is at low risk of being made unnatural. <laughs> so we call those sort of the termini, the, the endpoints of the corridor. And so that determines the length, you know, if we got uh, 40 kilometers between two natural areas, well, that's how long our corridor needs to be. Uh, the width is the more problematic, well I don't know if it's more problematic, but it's the greatest unknown uh, because it becomes increasingly expensive. You know, So developers always will ask the question of how narrow can we make this? And, and you'd like to reduce the costs, you know, so I wish I could give them an answer, but we really don't know the answer to how narrow we can make it and still serve um, many species. Uh, you know, the in the developer's world, you know, they'd say what's the biggest organism? Um, you know, if it's a brown bear, well, um, about two feet wider than the brown bear, well, it's enough, right? <laughs> and of course, it's it's not, uh, because uh, the neighboring area impinges on the utility of the wildlife corridor. So, some species. In fact, ironically, uh, the greatest need for width is not for the big species, because they are often highly mobile and can move across the landscape really fast, and they they're often the biggest, baddest thing in the landscape, so they can tolerate a fair bit of um, intrusion <laughs> from, from surrounding land uses. So the hardest things often to move across the landscape would be a, a habitat specialist that needs not only a particular type of habitat, but it's going to take five or ten generations to move it through its genes through the corridor. So it needs to have uh, a wide enough corridor to support a population mm -hmm. so that it can meet mates have its entire life history needs, its progeny can grow up and find mates, and eventually over the course of several generations, which could be 10 years or so, uh, its genes will then move across the, the corridor. So yeah, explain that to me just a little bit more. I think I understand what you're saying, but why would you want to make enough uh, a corridor for a habitat specialist. Yeah, so for a habitat specialist, let's say you want to move a tree squirrel between two of the two mountain ranges where it has a lot of oak woodlands. It's going to be hard to move across the landscape because it may well be that those, if those two mountain ranges are further apart than its dispersal distance, it's going to need some stopover areas where at least a couple individuals could 
meet each other, raise young, and the next generation could move across. So in some cases, perhaps in the Sky Islands of southern Arizona, it might be impossible for tree squirrels to move across. Probably since the last glaciation, their chances of having any stopover habitat are gone. Um, but, but for others, there might be um, you know, patches of habitat that could support movement. But again, if it's going to take two or three generations, we have to have enough of that, those habitat elements there that uh, if not a true population, at least a breeding pair or two <laughs> could, could be supported. I think in my mind when I was preparing for this interview, you know, I, I've thought about corridors before in the past, but usually they are focused on a species like a grizzly bear. I'm thinking of the Yellowstone Yukon Initiative or these mm -hmm. um, megafauna or charismatic species corridors. And so is it a newer idea in conservation biology to think about not just one species, but this connectivity for a whole system? I guess, you know, I've been pushing this idea for about 20 years. Um, and and I, I always say we got really one chance to design a corridor. And so if I design a corridor that works for grizzly bears or wolves, and I get it implemented, and then I decide, I learn later, oh, this isn't working for lizards or rattlesnakes or tortoises, well, I've used up my chance. <laughs> You know, so we, we I, I say we got one chance to do it right. So we need to think about what might ever need this corridor, including those species that might not even be here yet, but that are going to need some connectivity between these patches so they can shift their range in a changing climate. So we, we could do our best to guess all of these species, but uh, you know, I think uh, probably a more efficient route is is to make sure we have corridors that have diversity of elements such that it can support most species. We'll probably fail. You know, we're not going to design corridors that are going to work for everything that it needs to work for. But, you know, I, I think it's wisest for us to try and have corridors that can serve multiple species and ecological processes. And this, is, again, is where that crucial thing of width comes in, because I don't want it to be just wide enough for the mountain lion or the bear to get through, um, because I don't even know what needs to get through yet. So we, we want to design these, design these things very generously while still trying to minimize cost, and that's that big tension. When you say minimize cost, so I am assuming that there is not, like, you know, I'm thinking about the West and specifically the Colorado Plateau or, you know, the Intermountain West area, mm -hmm. and there is a lot of public land, but presumably there's not just public land between. That's right. Almost every time we identify two areas we want to connect, there's some private land in between, or there's multiple use lands that could have a big open pit copper mine in it. <laughs> and even a lot of the uh, publicly owned lands are subject to things like canals and highways and high-speed rail lines, which are just tremendous barriers to wildlife movement. So a big part of every one of these corridor designs is not only identifying the priority lands to conserve, but identifying measures where those existing barriers to movement, those linear barriers like railroads, canals, and highways, um, where we need to put in crossing structures so that things can get across. That sounds hard. Yeah, it is hard. And it's also, it's unsexy in some ways, too, because it's not often, uh, you, know, you know, I say this is land that's valuable for its context because it's connecting things we do really care about rather than its content, that it yeah. has the charismatic stuff in it or the 
dramatic sceneries that we love. So we've got a lot of these core areas that were established sometimes for scenic beauty or recreational value, or in some cases, a glamorous charismatic species. And now we're trying to, to preserve the value of those areas. We want to connect them with these corridors. But again, their value is not for, so much for what they contain, but for their context, what they can do to maintain ecosystem process over the long term. So in that respect, it's a harder sell, and they're harder to manage because by definition, they're long and skinny. <laughs> so they have a lot of edge to manage. Uh, so that, that's real challenging. You know, who wants to own them? <laughs> mm. you know, it's not going to be like a great national park. Um, what kind of management would they need? A lot of, so they will all, the idea is almost all of these are being designed in areas where human uh, use of the landscape is changing and becoming more intense. So I want to conserve some land before it's all used up. So we're, our expectation is that the land outside the corridor will be converted to urban and agricultural uses within the next few decades. So that means there's going to be neighbors, <clears throat> and we've got to manage those neighbors. Um, we want to involve them in a positive way. They're going to use it. Uh, there have been some, sometimes some corridor advocates say, yeah, we're going to design it and we're going to conserve it, and it's for wildlife only. I say, no, that's really not true. If I was living next to one of these things, you could put a big fence on it. If it's a 20-foot fence, I'm going to have a 21-foot ladder. You know, <laughs> people are going to use these things, so we need to be smart about uh, uh, making them usable for people as well as for wildlife. That's another reason to make it wide, such that you can accommodate humans and, and their pets. They're going to walk, they're going to bring a dog with them, and um, there's going to be noise. Uh, and there's going to be artificial night lighting, but we need to figure out how we can engage those neighbors to minimize the adverse effects while allowing them uh, the enjoyment of, the, of these areas. So are there any examples of these corridors that currently exist that you've been a part of? Yeah, I guess, or, or that are well on the road to existing. I guess I can think of two where at least the land conservation part and the highway crossing structures are pretty much in place. Um, one is the Coal Canyon Corridor in Southern California between the Chino Hills and the Santa Ana Mountains where land has been bought. Uh, there was a vehicle underpass that's been decommissioned and turned into a wildlife undercrossing structure. Second is very recent down near Tucson, Arizona, between the Tortolita Mountain Range and the Santa Catalina Mountain Range, just north of Tucson, where again the, uh, the town of Oro Valley was going to annex 14,000 acres of land for suburban development. Um, but as part of their offer, incorporating the land into the town, they designated a one kilometer wide swath as a wildlife corridor. And then they also, the uh, uh, Arizona Department of Transportation and the Regional Transportation Authority designed and have now built three crossing structures where State Route 77 crosses through that corridor. So that's real exciting. Uh, that's probably the most advanced. And it was exciting. It was just last fall, I believe, um, of 20, fall of 2016 that these uh, structures were built. And so they've already documented one of the days the workers came, they were working on one of the undercrossing structures. And desert tortoise, one of the focal species, was in the crossing structure. Okay. You know, there's still, you know, scraped dirt underneath and piles of concrete and machinery. And here's this tortoise crossing under the uh, State Route 77 using this crossing structure. 
So it's uh, it's cool. That's very cool. Yeah. Who paid for them? Yeah. So uh, well, in in the case of the the one in, in near Tucson, Arizona. Well, the crossing structures were paid for by a bond act by the citizens of Pima County. About 10 years ago, they uh, passed a bond to make their highways more permeable. And I think this is actually the first project. You know, they waited 10 years to spend the money. They, they wanted to make the first purchase a good one. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, where they knew the land was going to be conserved. So that this was, again, the citizens deciding connectivity is important to us. Pima County has what they call a Sonoran Desert Conservation Plan, so it's where they've prioritized a lot of areas for conservation. This was one of several connectivity areas that were just sort of crayon drawings, blurry uh, things. We want to connect to these this to the Santa Catalinas someday, but this was the first one where then they operationalized it in a real concrete way. We want to conserve this land. The, uh, I believe the corridor is being purchased, I'm not really privy to the details, but I believe it's being purchased by Pima County, which again has money, they spend money <laughs> on, on conservation lands. So I believe it'll be owned and managed by Pima County. If you could designate a corridor, either around Flagstaff or the greater Colorado Plateau region, I'm curious what you would be interested in connecting in our, in our local area. God, you know, we're in such good shape. In some ways, it's, it's <laughs> you know, there's so many areas that are just like, we got five years to right. get something done or we're, we're toast. And this isn't, <laughs> this isn't one of so them. The, so this isn't the, the, the place where we should be thinking the most about these things. Yeah, you know, I'd say here, you know, I'd say in some of our, our, our better off areas, uh, the threats are not so much that we're going to have another city of 100,000, you know, which is really which is what's happening, you know, parts of Southern California, you know, we get these areas that have, goes from population zero, even down there near uh, town of Oro Valley. The town of Marana has gone from 5,000, I think, to a million in 15 years. Wow. You know, so, so we, we have areas where, that are just growing so fast. Yeah. Uh, so we don't have that threat here. Mostly what we have are uh, highways here. Um, and we need to think about, I, you know, 50 years ago, when I was a young boy, we had no highways. <laughs> we had thought about making them permeable, and, and, and we didn't. So, so here, if we can mitigate some of these highways, mm -hmm. and, and we are doing some cool things. So we're probably going to have a crossing structure primarily to serve pronghorn, but also for other species here on Highway 89 between Flagstaff and Cameron. So that's probably going to happen within the next five or ten years. And pronghorn are losing genetic diversity because they they're very hard. They're very reluctant to cross roads. Mm -hmm. So this will probably be a vegetated overcrossing, a grassland overcrossing over Highway 89. Uh, so that's a local thing where we're trying to take this per big, big, obvious barrier in the landscape and and make it more permeable to wildlife movement. Canals are another big thing, and not often on people's radar yeah. as, as a barrier, but they're actually harder to cross than a highway because most of them are uh, a six-foot chain-link fence without riggers on each side, a concrete slope that's yeah. greater than 100%, and then fast-moving water flowing through it. Very few things can, can get across a canal, and we've put no thought to wildlife movement in canal design so far. So these will be other barriers that we're slowly coming to terms with. 
how do you see if these corridors are working? <sighs> In general, well, again, it's hard to evaluate what we don't have yet. True. How, so, how do you plan yeah. to monitor these corridors? Yeah, I think the very best way to monitor successive corridors would be using genetic information. So to pick several species and the, and and see how much gene flow is occurring. That's especially valuable because it gene flow can reflect the kind of movement we need most, which is movement that results in gene flow. So there have been some cases like here, the corridor north of Tucson, we, we put up cameras, we know animals are crossing, wonderful. Same thing at Coal Canyon, we can put in cameras or track plates and we can see that animals are moving. But we don't really know if that's effective movement. Those animals could move across and die. <laughs> they could move across and die before they reproduce. And in one area in Southern California near the Santa Monica Mountains, which are almost completely isolated, they radio tagged a lot of bobcats and coyotes. And they would document occasional movements across the freeway and back. But none of them resulted in gene flow, as near as we can tell. So that's what we call a necessary but not sufficient condition for corridor success. So that's the sort of thing that we can and do monitor is animal movement. And, and that's cool. But again, what we really want to know is that enough of these animals are moving and reproducing that it's um, allowing gene flow to occur. That, that, that's how we're going to know if these succeed. Have you ever played around in the, with the idea in the back of your head with uh, moving species? Yes. Uh, I try to keep that in the back of my head. Um, <laughs> so that's the developer's first solution, of course. Is, oh, let's, just, let's just build our city of 100,000 and, and they always will pick the, the most obvious species, like the bear or the mountain lion, and we'll pick it up and we'll move it. And so that's where I get back to the idea that it's more than one species. And moving them is also very expensive and difficult. Uh, it would require us to really be monitoring the populations in both of the areas we want to connect. We'd also have to monitor the success of the animals we move. Again, movement is a necessary but not sufficient condition. You know, we could pick up that animal, dump it out, and it's stressed out and dies. <laughs> we haven't done anything, have we? Um, so in the long term, I think we're better off letting nature uh, handle it. It should be, the, it should be our last option, <laughs> not our first option. I'm curious in what got you interested in wildlife and conservation biology. Yeah, I guess being in love with life. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I actually, um, I'm, I'm, I'm a retread in a way. <clears throat> I was actually out of undergraduate college working as a hospital technician doing cardiology tests, uh, cardiac catheterizations and stress tests and echocardiograms. And I was in my mid-twenties and realized, um, hmm, you know, what, what do I want to do with life? <laughs> Can I see myself doing this? It's a, it's a satisfying career in some ways, but I thought, well, what do I really want to do for the next few decades? And so I you know, made a conscious choice that, uh, well, let's, I want to make a difference in the world, and here's how I want to do it. Um, so for me, it was, it was a very much a, a choice. Um, what do you enjoy about being a scientist? It's fun. Yeah, so being a scientist is 
first and foremost, all scientists, what, what we seek to do is figure out how the world works. <laughs> you know, from, <laughs> how much more fun can you get than that? You know, since uh, I guess one of the first scientists, Aristotle, said this is the most sublime thing humans can do. He says it's as close as we can get to being God is trying to figure out how the world works. And I think there's a long tradition of that. And then for me, I'm an applied scientist. And so I say, ah, this is, here's what's even more fun. Not only do I get to try and figure out how the world works, but I get to try and change how the world works. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this is cool. <laughs> so it's, it's what I love. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so much for this interview. It's been really cool to hear about all of this different work. To listen to this show with Dr. Paul Beyer or any past shows, visit kzmu.org, iTunes, or Stitcher. The music is by Jeremy Spaulding. Funding is from the BYU Charles Red Center for Western Studies, and the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU.